This is Space Time Series 24, Episode 59, for broadcast on the 26th of May, 2021. Coming up on Space Time, discovery of a new type of aurora, the mysterious supernova shedding light on the violent death of stars, and the Australian Defence Force establishes its own space division. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Scientists looking through old videos have discovered a new type of aurora. The findings, reported in the journal Geophysical Research Space Physics, claims the newly discovered phenomena, called a diffuse auroral eraser, raises questions about whether these are common events that have simply been overlooked, or whether they're actually very rare occurrences. Aurora occur when charged particles flowing from the sun interact with the Earth's protective magnetic field. Some of these particles then follow Earth's magnetic field lines towards the poles, releasing energy and generating the colourful lights of the aurora as they collide with atoms and molecules in the atmosphere. For millennia, humans in high latitudes have been enthralled by aurorae, the northern and southern lights, the aurora australis and aurora borealis. Yet even after all this time, it appears these dancing ribbons, or more accurately sheets of light above the Earth, still holds some secrets. Scientists at the University of Iowa first spotted the event while reviewing 20-year-old videos. They noticed several instances where a section of the diffuse aurora, that's the faint background glow accompanying the more vivid light commonly associated with the aurora, suddenly goes dark, as if scrubbed out by a giant blotter. And then, after a short period of time, the blacked-out section suddenly reappears. It's all very mysterious. The video was originally shot in a town called Churchill along Hudson Bay in Canada back on March the 15th, 2002 by physicist David Knudsen from the University of Calgary. Knudsen's group were using a special camera designed to capture low-level light, much like night vision goggles. They were becoming a bit disheartened because the forecast had called for clear dark skies, normally perfect conditions for viewing aurorae, but there were no dazzling illuminations happening. Though the scientists mostly only saw darkness as they gazed upwards with their own eyes, the camera was picking up all sorts of auroral activity, including an unusual sequence where areas of the diffuse aurora disappeared, then came back. Knudsen, looking at the videos that was being recorded, noted the pulsating blackout diffuse glow, which then fills in over several seconds. He was surprised when a patch brightened and then turned off, Background diffuse aurora was erased, and then the hole would fill back in after about half a minute or so. The observations lay dormant in the video unstudied until Riley Troyer was asked to investigate. Troyer then created a software program that could key in on frames in the video where the faint erasers were visible. In all, he was able to catalogue 22 eraser events in the two-hour recording. Troyer says the most valuable aspect was the time it takes for the aurora to go from an eraser event, when the diffuse aurora is blotted out, to be filled or coloured in again. That's because having a value on that will help with future modelling of magnetic fields. 
To find out more, Andrew Dunkley is speaking with astronomer Professor Fred Watson. It is uh, remarkable that, that we're still learning things about the aurora. Mm. And part, partly, Andrew, it's due to the fact that we have the technology now, we've got modern, modern digital cameras that people can set up and do marvellous footage of, of auroral displays, and we see those all the time, if you look like looking at that kind of thing, which I do. But also, the other thing is that, like me, as you know, I've led many uh, tours up to the Northern Arctic that, to look at the aurora. And I think that's become much more of a commonplace thing. So a lot more people are going up to see the aurora borealis in the north. A lot more people go down to Tasmania to see the aurora australis in the south. And so more people are watching these phenomena. Yes. and that, I'll, t- uh, I'll tell you something, uh, Fred. <coughs> one of my golf partners, uh, Darren who um, I play with every Saturday, uh, took a, one of those Qantas flights to nowhere recently. All right. yes, yep. And it took them down to Antarctica and they got to see the Aurora Australis. Very good. While they that were flying be, down there. So, you know, yeah. um, this has been a consequence of COVID-19 because yeah. the airlines have been hit so hard due to travel bans. Yep. They've had to diversify. And so airlines in Australia have been doing these flights to nowhere. So that they were in the air for something like 10 hours to yep. fly down there, have a look around and then fly back, which is rather extraordinary. But, you know, that's a side note. But uh, they got to yeah. see the Aurora Australis. But it reflects the popularity of uh, hunting aurora, mm. which um, you know used to be something that you only read about in books. And you and I have talked about some of the new phenomena that have been introduced. Um, there was one not long ago, which were kind of ripply aurora, and then there were the Steves as well. I don't know whether you remember the Steves, right. which are now recognised as being a phenomenon related to aurora, but not actually the same thing. So we've now got a new, something quite new, which comes from this old footage, as you've said. Uh, this work, this research has come from scientists at the University of Calgary, University of Iowa, uh, and NASA too. The phenomenon is that, unlike many aurora, which form curtains, or, and they, that's exactly what they look like, like in the sky or streamers across the sky or sometimes the best ones are what they call a corona where the thing explodes above your head is it an extraordinary experience standing underneath something doing that but there is another well it's a well-known auroral phenomenon and that is what's called the diffuse auroral glow and it's basically an aurora it's green but it's spread fairly evenly across the sky it's not uh, in these streamers and things the new phenomenon is that this footage revealed that within the diffuse glow so if you imagine this green glow over a large area of the sky and suddenly a small chunk of it brightens up and stays bright for a few minutes and then it disappears but where it was leaves a hole in the diffuse auroral glow it's just black underneath it's almost as though it's rubbed it out and that's why they're being called diffuse auroral erasers because it's just like Mm. using an eraser to rub out the background aurora and Basically, it's a mystery. These scientists who are well-versed in the field of auroral studies have no idea what's causing them. One of the um, astronomers at the University of Iowa says it raises the question, are these a common phenomenon that has been overlooked or are they rare? Knowing they exist means there is a process that is creating them and it may be a process we haven't started to look at yet because we never knew they were happening until now. So, amazing. uh, Yeah, it's great stuff and learning something else about our own planet, in fact, let alone the rest of the universe. It's finding out what's going on up here. So, um, so uh, it's we, the, we know what causes aurora, but obviously yeah. there are varying types, and That's sometimes right. we don't understand why certain things are happening to them. Exactly, the mechanisms of, of the aurora, even just the straightforward aurora that we understand, is fairly complex, and it goes back. Our understanding of it goes back to the turn of the. 
20th century when um, Christian Birkeland, a well-known Norwegian scientist who's a big hero of mine, he spent the whole winter on top of a mountain, which I've been very close to uh, near Alta in northern Norway. This mountain's called Halde. He wintered out over there with a couple of colleagues, one of whom didn't survive because the winters are pretty serious up there. But he was the first to sort of really show that the aurora don't, doesn't touch the ground because before that, people didn't know whether these mm. dancing lights actually start at the ground level. And he also worked out that it was electrons from the sun that uh, actually did the trick, And but it was 50 years before anybody believed him or 50 years after his death. Yeah. So, yeah, we're still learning. And uh, I think uh, this is one to watch. That's Dr. Fred Watson, an astronomer with the Department of Science, speaking with Andrew Dunkley on our sister program, Space Nuts. And this is Space Time, still to come a mysterious supernova shedding light on the violent death of stars, and the Australian Defence Force formally establishes its own space division. All that and much more still to come on Space Time. A curiously yellow pre-supernova star has caused astrophysicists to re-evaluate what's possible in the deaths of our universe's most massive stars. At the end of their lives, cool yellow stars are typically shrouded in hydrogen, which conceals the star's hot blue interior. But one yellow star, located 35 million light-years away in the Virgo galaxy cluster, was mysteriously lacking this crucial hydrogen layer at the time of its explosion. The study's lead author, Charles Kilpatrick from Northwestern University, says astronomers haven't seen this type of scenario before. He says if a star explodes without hydrogen, it should be extremely blue, really, really hot, and it's almost impossible for a star to be this cool without having hydrogen in its outer layer. To try and work out what's going on, Kilpatrick and colleagues looked at pretty well every stellar scenario they could think of to try and explain the observations but every single model still required the star to have hydrogen. The problem is the supernova produced by the star when it died simply didn't show that. Kilpatrick's a member of the Young Supernova Experiment. It uses the PANSTARS telescope in Hawaii to catch supernovae in their earliest moments following their initial explosions. He detected the supernova, catalogued as 2019 YVR, in the spiral galaxy NGC 4666. He then used deep space images captured by the Hubble Space Telescope two and a half years earlier to determine that the progenitor was a massive star. Kilpatrick says what massive stars do right before they explode remains a big unsolved mystery. He says it's rare to see this kind of star right before it explodes into a supernova. Several months after the explosion, Kilpatrick and colleagues discovered that the material being ejected by the star's final explosion seemed to collide with a large mass of hydrogen which was already there. A report in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society claims this led the authors to hypothesise that the progenitor star might have expelled that hydrogen within a few years before its death. And it all makes sense, because astronomers have already long suspected that stars undergo violent eruptions or death rows in the years before a final supernova event takes place. The discovery of this star and the sequence leading up to its death provides the most direct evidence ever found that stars really do experience catastrophic eruptions which cause them to lose mass before they go supernova. If a star was having these eruptions, then it's likely that it expelled its hydrogen several decades before it finally exploded. 
Of course, there are other possibilities, such as the progenitor being in a binary system with a less massive companion star, which may simply have stripped away the hydrogen from the progenitor. The problem with that idea, however, is that astronomers won't be able to search for the companion star until the supernova's brightness fades somewhat, and that could take up to a decade. So, it looks like it's going to be a waiting game for now. This is space time. Still to come. The Australian Defence Force formally establishes its own space division, and the United States launches a new early warning missile detection satellite. All that and more still to come on Space Time. The Australian Defence Force has formally established its own space division within the Air Force. The new body will be responsible for the ADF Space Domain Awareness, Sovereign-Controlled Satellite Communication Systems, as well as Space-Based Observation and Navigation Systems. It'll draw on expertise from all parts of the ADF and operate under a joint command. The move follows the establishment of a United States Space Force by the US government as a new branch of the American military. Russia and China have already had their own military space forces in operation for many years. This is space time. Still to come, the United States launches a new generation early warning missile detection satellite, and later in the science report, more cases of people getting reinfected with COVID-19 despite already being fully vaccinated. All that and more still to come on space time. As tensions continue in the Middle East and build up with China, the United States has launched a new generation early warning missile detection satellite. The Space-Based Infrared Sensor, or Cerberus Geo-5 spacecraft, was launched aboard an Atlas V Centaur rocket into nearly clear blue skies from Space Launch Complex 41 at the Cape Canaveral Space Force Base in Florida. This is the 87th Atlas V launch and ULA's 144th mission. Built in Decatur, Alabama and Harlingen, Texas, Atlas V is comprised of a common core booster powered by an NPO Energomash RD-180 engine equipped with two Aerojet Rocketdyne solid rocket boosters, and a Centaur second stage, powered by an Aerojet Rocketdyne RL-10C11 engine, and equipped with a 4-meter diameter payload fairing. The Atlas V rocket stands 194 feet, or about 59 meters tall, and weighs just under a million pounds, or nearly 431,000 kilograms, fully fueled. Status check. Go Atlas. Go Centaur. Go Sibbers. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3... Atlas Ignition, two, one, and liftoff, liftoff, the United Launch Alliance Atlas V rocket with the fifth space-based infrared system satellite for the United States Space Force. Now 15 seconds into flight, PU's gone to closed-loop control, engine operating parameters continue to look good. You're hearing the voice of Patrick Moore providing launch vehicle ascent data. Vehicle's now completing the pitch-over program, body rates look good, seeing good chamber pressure on both SRBs. And RD-180 now beginning the throttle bucket. Engine response looks good. And now passing through Mach 1, Atlas V is now supersonic. And Max-Q, maximum dynamic pressure. Body rates continue to look good through the boost phase. Vehicle's now throttling back up slightly. Engine response continues to look good. Chamber pressure on both SRBs continue to look good. Atlas is now 10 miles in altitude, 4.5 miles downrange distance, traveling at 2,000 miles per hour. One minute, 20 seconds into flight, standing by for SRB burnout shortly. 
Body rates continue to look good. Chamber pressure on the SRB is now tailing off. And we have burnout on both SRBs. Atlas will hold on to the SRBs for an additional 39 seconds before jettison. RD-180 is throttled back up to full thrust. Engine response looks good. Now passing 1 minute 50 seconds into flight. Body rates continue to look good throughout the boost phase. And the Atlas V now weighs one half of its liftoff weight. And standing by for SRB jettison shortly. And we have good indication of separation of both SRBs. Vehicle's gone to closed loop steering, seeing a slight correction in the body rates, now damping out nicely. RD-180 engine operating parameters continue to look good. RD-180 throttling down slightly now as expected. Atlas is now 39 miles in altitude, 68 miles downrange distance, traveling at 5,400 miles per hour. And the Centaur reaction control system is now pressurizing the flight levels. System response looks good. RD-180 pump speeds and injector pressures continue to look good. 3 minutes 30 seconds into flight. Atlas is now 56 miles in altitude, 160 miles downrange distance, traveling at 9,000 miles per hour. And RD-180 is now throttling to maintain a constant 5G acceleration limit. RD-180 responses look good. And Centaur's begun the boost phase chill-down sequence. RD-180 now going to 4.6G throttle limiting, standing by for BECO. And we have BECO booster engine cutoff, standing by for stage set. And we have good indication of stage separation. We have pre-start on the RL-10, standing by for ignition. We have ignition and full thrust on the RL-10. Chamber pressure looks good. Body rates look good. And we have good indication of payload fairing jettison. This first burn of today's mission will last approximately 10 minutes 30 seconds. RL-10 engine operating parameters look good. Body rates have damped out nicely from the startup transients. And the RCS system has begun the initial thruster firings for system thermal conditioning just over five minutes now into flight. The satellite was deployed above the Indian Ocean into a geostationary transfer orbit. The 4,500-kilogram Lockheed Martin-built spacecraft uses a new combat platform with improved anti-jamming capabilities and more power. Its primary sensors provide enhanced shortwave and expanded midwave infrared accuracy, continuously scanning the planet as part of around-the-clock global strategic and tactical missile launch detection, flight path monitoring and target prediction capability. The spacecraft's also equipped with a step stairer sensor, which is a new highly accurate pointing and control system designed to scan specific intelligence areas of interest. Cybris Geo 5 is part of a program to replace the previous Defence Support Program Early Warning System for detecting intercontinental ballistic missile launches. It was this system which was used in January 2020 to confirm that it was Iran which undertook a missile attack on the Al-Sayed airbase in Iraq where US troops had been stationed. The sixth and final Cybrus satellite for the new constellation will be launched next year. As well as its primary payload, the mission also carried the TD-3 and TD-4 demonstration satellites for the US military's Department of Aeronautics and the US Air Force Academy. This is Space Time. And time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. Scientists have reported two more cases of people becoming infected with variants of the COVID-19 coronavirus despite already being fully vaccinated. The findings reported in the New England Journal of Medicine highlight the potential risk of mutating variants of the deadly disease. The study looked at a group of more than 400 people who were already fully vaccinated with either the Pfizer-BioNTech or Moderna versions of the mRNA vaccine, and they found that two women still went on to develop COVID-19. Genetic sequencing of the virus in the two cases revealed variants of clinical importance, including the E484K mutation originally identified in South Africa in one woman 
and three mutations in both, catalogued as T951, DEL142144, and D614G. Over 3.5 million people have now been killed by the COVID-19 virus, with another 166 million infected since the deadly disease first emerged from Wuhan, China, and was spread around the world. A new study claims that, unlike past generations, the majority of gay and bisexual Generation Z teenage boys have come out to their parents. However, stigma and religious beliefs still prevented some young people from disclosing their true sexual identity. The study by the American Psychological Association provides a glimpse into coming out practices for Generation Z as well as millennial kids, those born between 1998 and 2010. The findings, reported in the Journal of the Psychology of Sexual Orientation and Gender Diversity, examined survey data from 1,194 13- to 18-year-old boys, all of whom identified as LGB+. Although, as there were boys, I guess we can leave out the L. Researchers found that 66% of those surveyed had come out to their mothers or other female parental figures, while 49% had come out to their fathers or other male parental figures. Now, that compares to similar surveys back in the 1990s, which shows that just 40% of adolescent boys had come out to their mothers and less than 30% to their dads. The study also found that white teens were more likely than black participants to have come out to a parental figure. Those identifying as gay were also more likely to come out to a parent than those identifying as bisexual or those still unsure of their sexuality. Participants who said they weren't religious were also more likely to say they had come out to a parent than teens who identified themselves as being religious. And teens who were not fully accepting of their sexual identity were also less likely to come out than those who embraced it. Paleontologists have described a new species of mosasaur based on two complete skulls and jaws found in Morocco. Mosasaurs were marine lizards that lived during the age of the dinosaurs during the late Cretaceous. A report in the journal Cretaceous Research claims the new species named Pluridens serpentes was about 8 metres long, with long slender jaws and numerous small hook-like snake-like teeth designed to grab small prey like fish and squid. A man who's paralysed from the neck down has been able to communicate by thought simply by thinking about writing out words thanks to a transplant in his brain. A report in the journal Nature claims researchers used artificial intelligence software combined with the brain implants to decode the man's thoughts about handwriting into text on a computer screen. The man was able to communicate at speeds of around 18 words per minute. That's not far from the 23 words per minute someone of the same age would be expected to achieve texting on a smartphone. The man had two implants on the left side of his brain, which picked up signals from neurons firing in the part of the brain that governs hand movement. Those brain signals were then sent through the wires to a computer where artificial intelligence algorithms decoded the signals to work out his intended hand and finger motions and then repeat those on a computer screen. Samsung unveils its new trifold smartphone display, Apple launches lossless audio, new features for Microsoft Teams, and Twitter, long regarded as the toilet door of the internet, have come up with a new way to get money out of you. That's if you're silly enough to fall for it. With the details on these stories and more, we're joined by technology editor Alex Haravroit from ity.com. Yeah, well, there's lots of rumours out that Twitter's about to launch a service called Twitter Blue, and it'll be on a sliding scale of uh, pricing each month. So they're talking about a US $2.99 a month fee, and this will give you an ad-free Twitter experience. Uh, you'll be able to undo tweets. 
So what that means is that instead of deleting the tweets, you can um, just edit something and, and not have to delete it completely. There's also talk about being able to organize tweets into folders and bookmarks, that some people want to be able to keep copies of that. And just a way of Twitter to be able to try and further monetize its user base. But and you're already get a, a monthly product, base. aren't you? Well, you are, you are. And uh, that doesn't stop these companies <laughs> trying to figure out more ways of extracting money from you. Yes, if they don't ban you first. Um, Apple launching new lossless audio option. Tell me about this. Yeah, well, a number of the different services out there offer higher definition audio. So that's audio without any of the compression that you get with the MP3s that we've known so well. And MP3s came out in an era when we didn't have broadband as we have it now. We had dial-up connections. Yep. And it, you could you could rip a CD in a, in a thing called a wave format. But that was huge. It was hundreds of megabytes. It would take hours to send over a phone line. So MP3 was developed to remove a lot of the frequencies that supposedly the human ear can't hear. But, of course, that led to many people saying, oh, it, was it sounds tinny. a bit tinny. Yeah. And, 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 but, it, but it meant you could fit thousands of songs onto an iPod, for example, or other MP3 players. Now, today we have 4G, 5G fiber connections. We don't need to have this compression anymore. And there's already been a lot of work in having lots of audio codecs. But normally when you are paying for Cubos or Deezer or Tidal uh, and you want the higher definition music, you're paying double the amount. So Apple is announcing that 75 million tracks in its collection are going to be available in this higher audio quality format as of June 2021. Uh, But interestingly, you can't listen to this higher quality audio over your AirPods, even the AirPods Max, because it's too much data to send down Bluetooth. But if you have normal headphones that you plug in uh, or speakers, and especially if you buy some of these high-end headphones that cost a couple of thousand dollars and you choose this lossless audio, you'll definitely hear the difference. It'll be a much richer and warmer sound with nothing removed. Okay, we have Skype, we have Zoom, we have Microsoft Teams. All are offering new features all the time. What's Microsoft Teams doing now? What they're doing is they're increasing the amount of usage you can have without charging any fee. With Zoom, it's 40 minutes before you get disconnected, unless you're paying them around about $20 Australian a month for a basic subscription. And if you want to have even larger amounts of uh, people online at the same time, you know, depending on how many it is, they'll charge you more. Microsoft Teams is installed with every copy of Office 365, and Microsoft has sort of installed that by default. So it's a little bit like when they tried to get Internet Explorer to overtake Netscape. They just use their market power to, to get it out there. But this is Microsoft Teams for home users, and what they're offering is that one-to-one users, so you and me talking on a video conference, we can now talk for 24 hours with it and as a maximum, and then you'll be disconnected and you can reconnect again for another 24 hours. But um, previously, where they had 100 people... Yeah, I can imagine were, the other people really looking forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's just that you can have a, a conference for three or four hours, or you can go for a you know, a long time and not be worried that everyone has to disconnect and reconnect. But uh, normally Teams will allow you to have 100 people to be connected to a video conference for 24 hours. Well, they're now, because of COVID, which is still ongoing, they're increasing that to 300 people for a maximum of 24 hours. They will eventually limit that down and want you to pay extra fees and all the rest. But for the time being, they're trying to gazump Zoom and they're trying to make Teams the video conferencing, chatting and planning app of choice that you can use with all your friends and family. All right, you're a tech expert. Which one do you prefer to use given a choice? Well, I use both Zoom and Teams. It really depends on the people I'm speaking with. I mean, they're both as good as each other. They both give great quality. They're both in, you know, high definition. They both let you have virtual backgrounds. It's a little bit like saying, you know, do you prefer Microsoft? Edge or Google Chrome or Firefox or Safari, they all pretty much do the same thing. They all have extensions. Yeah. It's a bit like driving a Toyota or a Ford or a Honda or 
a Mitsubishi. I mean, ultimately, it does the same job, gets you from A to B. If Jeremy Clarkson was dead, he'd be rolling over in his grave hearing you say that. <laughs> Big news from Samsung. They've unveiled a trifold display. Yes, well, everyone has heard now of those folding phones, which folds like a book. Yeah. But if you've ever seen the TV show Westworld, you had this trifold display, this tablet that was in three parts that if you think of a letter that you fold into three to put into an envelope, it's sort of like that. So you can imagine, you actually see a picture if you look online for this Samsung S-Fold display. It's happening at Display Week 2021, which is happening in uh, May as we're recording this. And they, uh, this will be the phones of the future that are coming pro probably later this year and certainly later this decade. We'll see many more of these types of folding displays. They also have a display that you can slide out. So it's probably using that rollable technology that has no creases or folds at all. They also have a 17-inch monitor that you can fold in half like a book so it makes it more portable. And they also have an, a camera that's underneath the display of a laptop so that uh, the bezels on the top are much smaller than they currently are on most laptops. Uh, but I don't know how you're going to be able to stick a band-aid over that if it's directly under the display, uh, which could be a problem for some people who, who, who you know, want to look after their privacy and, and turn that off. But the problem with having cameras under the display is that it's got to somehow you know, go through the LCD pixels that are showing you an image. So I'm not quite sure how they figured that out, but you certainly if they can put a camera right in the middle of the display, then when you're looking at somebody else on a Zoom or That's a team conference... That's got to be it, doesn't it? Yeah. You've yeah. got to get the camera well, hidden behind the pixels, but in the display itself, so you're looking straight at it. This is what you naturally want to do, and it's always like you're looking up someone's nose otherwise. Yeah, well, when I video interview people, I tell them, look, please look directly at the camera. I know it's unnatural. I know you have to use your peripheral vision to see what I look like. But even though you and I, as in the people I'm talking to, are having a conversation, really the people you are speaking to are those who are watching this video. And it looks better if you are looking at them or it appears you're looking at them rather than looking down to look at me on the screen. It just doesn't look natural. That's technology editor Alex Aharov-Royd from ITWire.com. That's the show for now. Spacetime is available every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favorite podcast download provider, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. Spacetime's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. And you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, access to our exclusive Facebook group and other rewards. Just go to SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com for full details. And if you want more space time, please check out our blog, where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at StuartGary on Twitter, at SpacetimeWithStuartGary on Instagram, through our Spacetime YouTube channel. And on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. 
And Space Time is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Space Time with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 